Thank you. Um, I thought I'd take roll call first. So, uh, no, actually, I was going through my notes on uh, study of the Bible, and I do keep files, and found in my file, I don't remember the year, but one year at Camp Horizon, Randy and Myra were directors, and of course that would have been a number of years, Randy and Myra Beers, and I was the speaker, but Randy also decided, ah, you're only the speaker, you don't have enough to do, so uh, you will have a Bible study craft. So I taught a Bible study craft several times a day, it seems like, and drove the boat, and taught a fishing class. Now, I was joking with the young people this morning, some of them, about the old days at camp. You know, it's always the old days. Now they were more glorious, glamorous, and whatever. Because sometimes they lament the five weeks of camp now. I'm like, you weren't there back in the, when we had eight weeks plus CEF, which make a ninth week of camp. But anyway, um, I don't have all the names of those that were in that class that, that year. I have the names of those who requested me to send them additional material. Carrie Galpin. Danelle Crosby, Jamie Beers, <laughs> Jennifer Knight, Sam Muir, Brian Skelton, Aaron Beers, Rachel Payne, Lori Skelton, and Anel Donnell. So that was quite a class, wasn't it? Good to see some of them continuing on, many of them continuing on in the things of the Lord. Um, I almost just said, does Bramblewood Drive ring a bell? Because <laughs> I've got the addresses of where these folks at least used to live. So we're studying uh, and looking at, in our conference, uh, the reliability uh, of the Bible. How can we trust that this book is indeed the Word of God? And we're going to continue with that this morning, and we're going to continue with things related to that tomorrow as well. But as I mentioned, I'm going to depart a little bit from my standard method of operation in uh, just presenting simply the Word of God. I find it necessary for this subject to go into history a little bit and talk about how we got our Bible. And one of the goals, of course, as I mentioned, is that if you have questions about the authority of the Word of God, if you have questions about whether or not this book is indeed the Word of God, we at least want you to leave with the, the sense that we believe the things we believe because it's, it's what God's Word says. And you can always fall back on that. It's not just a fallback. Really, that's kind of the first and foremost thing, isn't it? Um, and we'll think a little bit more about that, but we're going to go into the realm of history a bit now and think about how we got our Bible. And this also will uh, bolster our faith when we realize how uh, the Word of God was given to us and so on. So let's think again about some points concerning the Word of God. First of all, as we noted from the Scripture itself, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We were looking at a broad uh, subject of the claims the Bible makes about itself. And there is no question, but as we saw in our brief uh, study yesterday evening, that the Bible emphatically declares to be the Word of God. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, it is inspired of God. And this is how God communicated his, his truth to those who were the human authors and how they were guided by the Spirit of God, as we'll see, to 
uh, be carried along by the Spirit of God. They spoke from God as they were carried along. Excuse me, uh, Facebook Live faux pas. I think I'm still in camera, but I need to get my pointer, my better pointer. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guided them without violating their personalities or their different styles. Luke's style is not John's style, et cetera, et cetera. And they were able to be carried by the Spirit of God in such a way that their personalities were not violated. It wasn't strictly dictation, but the end result is God got written what he wanted to have written. That's how I sort of define inspiration. And so we find a variety of styles, a variety of methods of approach to Scripture, how they did their research and so on. But in the end, we find that God got written what he wanted to have written. Secondly, the Bible, obviously, is a collection of books. The Bible, as we use that English term, is a book of books. So the Bible is made up of 66 different books. Over 1,600 years, from about 1,500 B.C. to A.D., almost A.D. 100, that's the span of time in which these particular books were written. Now, that becomes very important with some other things that we'll discuss here in a bit. Written by a lot of different people, more than 40 kings, prophets, leaders, followers of Jesus. So you have a book that was written over a time span of about 1,600 years by about 40 different people. And uh, pretty amazing that they were able to put this whole book together like this, or ultimately that it was put together. The Old Testament, as we have it, consists of 39 books. And then, of course, the Bible that the Lord Jesus used uh, had the same books, but they were arranged in a different order. So if you were to get a Hebrew Bible, or as we might say, a Jewish Bible, you'd have the same books, but they would be arranged in a bit different order. You see here where First and Second Chronicles would come at the end. Very helpful to understand the chronology of the books of the Bible. See, in our English Bible, we group the history books of the Old Testament, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther here, and we group them in this section with Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. But what we perhaps don't always understand is that these prophets here, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they actually fit in this time frame of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, as well as Daniel overlaps a little bit into that time. You see how they have them grouped here. So that just has to do with the grouping of the books. It doesn't have anything to do with the text of the books. The New Testament, of course, 27 books written from roughly the period of time A.D. 45 to 100. Written in three different languages, basically. The Bible was written mainly in Hebrew in the Old Testament, some Aramaic. Um, portions of the books of Daniel and Ezra are written in Aramaic. It's one of the interesting things when you come to the book of Daniel. Daniel overlaps several different kingdoms, several different monarchies, and uh, you'll, there are actual language changes in the text of the, of the he, uh, from the Hebrew to the Aramaic in the book of Daniel. Most of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, will note where those language changes come about. They really don't mean much to us who are primarily English speakers, but it's, it's good to know. New Testament, of course, written in, in the Greek language. The books were recognized and received by God's people as God's word. Can you guys over there see the screen at all? You can? Okay. Um, they were recognized 
uh, as God's inspired word from the very time they were written. They were recognized as divine revelation, and they were ex- used, uh, received as an exclusive and authoritative canon. Now, that's a word that you should memorize. So if your parents, again, like last night, ask you, were you paying attention? You would say, yes. Well, what did you learn? Well, last night I learned two words. I learned plenary or plenary and verbal. Yes. And uh, also I learned what those words mean, full and uh, words, verbal. And I also learned the word canon. You notice it only has one N, so it's not the kind of thing you shoot. Okay? The word canon means rule, basically. Rule. Um, uh, and, and a standard, if you will. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture or canonicity, it has to do with the rule, the recognized rule. These books were canonical. That is, they were recognized as being authoritative and from God. Now, I don't know how much we'll get into the subject of the canon of Scripture and how it was recognized, except to say that that there were a lot of other books that were written at the same times. There were other books in the Old Testament that were written, but they were never received as canonical or as canon of scripture and there's a reason for that before the printing press by by hand and this is another very important point when it comes to the accuracy of the transmission of god's word the jewish scribes developed a very intricate method of counting they would count the words and they would count the letters imagine that now you got to remember that in these scrolls for instance uh, one of the scrolls of Isaiah that was discovered at Qumran uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, I think it was roughly 28 feet long. No paragraph divisions, no chapter headings, just one long continuum of Hebrew letters, you see. And so they would literally count the not just the words, but the letters to ensure accuracy in copying the manuscripts of the Word of God. It's a question, isn't it? How do we know that the Bible we have is accurate today? And and part of the reason is, when we're thinking of the Old Testament in particular, was the meticulousness of the scribes who, um, who, who were so... See, they had an attitude about the Word of God. It's very interesting, isn't it? Most of you have met Ali, you know, Ali Farad, Faradi, um, Ferrari, I call him, uh, Hi, Ali, if you're looking. Uh, but um, the first time I met him uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, a couple years ago, uh, he came up to say something, and you've probably seen him do it. He took his Bible, you know, you know, kissed his Bible, whatever. I'm like, okay, you know. <laughs> but as he would say, when he was practicing Muslim, he would do that with the Quran. How could he not do that with the Word of God, you see? And I, so I get it. Not a bad attitude. A reverence for the scripture, the scribes. You see, they were, they had such a reverence for the word of God that we're told that the, the, the Masoretes later, when they were copying scripture, imagine this now. They couldn't run down to, you know, Target and buy a ream of paper. Materials to write on and write with were, were very expensive, hard to get, and hard to maintain. But imagine now you're doing a 28-foot scroll of Isaiah, let's say, and you make a mistake. Well, there was no, again, you young people have to Google it, there was no whiteout in that day. Um, There was no way just to backspace and make a correction, you see. 
No. You know what they would do? They would destroy that manuscript. Lest they communicated some error that had to do with the Word of God. That's how meticulous they were in the copying of the Scripture. So rather than destroy that manuscript, you were going to be like super careful that you copied exactly. And they counted the words and the letters. That's how meticulous they were in the copying of the Word of God. The Bible was the first complete book printed on a printing test with metal type. Uh, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press in Germany in the mid-1400s, and the Bible was the first full book to be printed on that moving press. Now, the Bible we have today uh, is, as it says, remarkably true to the original writings. Of the thousands of copies made by hand before 1500 A.D., over 5,600 Greek manuscripts still exist in whole or in part. Now, that is a tremendous help. I'll have some, our next session is going to be on the reliability of Scripture, the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture, and I'll address that a little bit more because it's very important. The sheer number of manuscripts that we have of Old Testament, not so much Old Testament, but particularly of the New Testament, um, is, is a very important thing to remember. Far better preserved than any of the ancient writings of people like Plato or Aristotle or any of those ancients. The Dead Sea Scrolls again confirm the reliability of the Old Testament. Uh, in 1947, near the Dead Sea, and Juan and I, on our trip in 2005, we went to this area of Qumran. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite coffee mugs um, is the one I bought at Qumran and has a little picture of the scrolls, you know, in the front of it. Just one of those nice little tokens that I have. But the uh, it confirmed the reliability of the methods used to preserve the Old Testament. So let me just briefly tell you this. I know this is a lot of information to take in early in the morning. Hopefully you've had sufficient caffeine to uh, to perk you up a bit. But when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the for instance, the Isaiah Scroll that was discovered, the oldest or the, the most recent, well, let me back up a minute. The, the oldest manuscript they had copied of Old Testament was separated from this time by about 900 years, almost 1,000 years. And the reason for that is a number of things. The kind of materials they used would wear out. They wouldn't last, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so you're saying now you got a manuscript that's, let's call it 1,000 years old. That's, the, that's, that's what you're going by, and all your recent copies are made from that. Now, all of a sudden, you find one that's been separated by all these years that takes you back uh, a thousand years prior to that, in other words. So you find one now that's done in, you know, the fourth century, let's say. Oh, well, you compare it with what you've been using, which is only done in the 900s or the thousand, you see. And when you compare them, you find like a 99% accuracy. Did that make sense? Did I say it right? Yeah. So you found this scroll. It's like finding a book, you see, that was written in the year 2018. And then you find the same book, let's say, that was written in the year, you know, 1000. And you, you compare the two together and you find this 99% accuracy. And the, and the things that were in that 1% weren't things that affected any doctrine or any truth or anything like minor vowel point things and very, very minor kind of things that didn't change any of the verses or any of the words. So a remarkable confirmation, again, was an incredible find. As we'll find, the Bible is its own best witness. 
But I think along with that, God has given us evidences. One that we'll see later is archaeology and things like this that come along and, and help to provide us with those other types of evidences that this book is indeed uh, the Word of God. And here's a portion of that Isaiah scroll, as you see it here, copied a thousand years later. Little few variants, as it says, but nothing that affects anything about God and so on. The Bible's obviously been translated in multitudes of different languages. As it was mentioned in prayer, though, still more than at the time of this, uh, 1,800 people groups with no Bible in their language. Very difficult work of translation that is carried on by many people around the world. Some languages are very easy to translate into. Other languages are very difficult to translate into. Not everybody has the same kind of alphabet or same kind of phonetics and so on and so on. It becomes very complicated, and yet there's been a tremendous work of translation. By A.D. 200, the Bible had been translated into seven languages. By 500, 13. By 917, by 1400, 28. Now you've got to remember comes in the printing press. And by 1800, 57 languages. So there really wasn't a lot of progress from 200 for 1600 years. Only in 57, only got to 57 languages, 50 languages added. By 1900, 537 languages. By 1980, 1100, it exponentially almost begins to double. And then by 2006, you see how many, and you see the scale on the right, and the chart on the right. Over the centuries, Scripture had been copied onto many different materials, and this shows you what some of the different materials were used in the copying of Scripture. Leather, papyrus, uh, Dr. Dippy, bless his soul, Dr. Dippy, um, used to sh take me down to the lake and show me the papyrus growing on the edges of uh, Lake Harris there in, in Camp Horizon. should have been a project to take some of that papyrus and to try to cut it and press it and dry it and make it into scrolls to write on. But uh, uh, that scroll would be called a codex. Codex because it was put together like a book. So you had scrolls and then eventually what's called a codex, which was put into sort of a book. This is P52, um, Papyrus 52. So a piece of papyrus, a fragment of uh P-52, is. these are named by different letters, sometimes for the people who discovered them and so on. It was copied in Greek on a papyrus codex. It's from John 18 and was written sometime between A.D. 90 and 150. So we have manuscripts that go back almost, you know, to the times of the actual apostles themselves. Now, years ago, when I first time I'd gone to Ireland, I was in the south of Ireland with uh, Tim from the Hood Hood, and... Uh, and Tim's funny guy, uh, Linda, uh, you know, he was in Waterford at the time. Now, I don't know if you know what Waterford's famous for, besides the hoods, but uh, Waterford Crystal, right? And it's very fascinating the way it's made. Now, Waterford Crystal may not mean most to, to, to many of you folks, but uh, I don't know if they still do, but the that glass-looking Super Bowl trophy? Oh, that's right, this is Miami. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and most of you weren't born until after 72, so anyway. But, uh, yeah, they actually have this trophy. You get it if you win lots of games. But uh, never mind, I shouldn't. <laughs> Can't erase Facebook Live. Uh, hate, haters hate. Um, anyway, um, 
uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. So the, that trophy and other trophies like that uh, were made at, the, at Waterford, the Waterford Crystal, handmade crystal, right? So I wanted to go see it, you know. And Tim's like, eh, I'm not interested. He's like, I don't do tourist things. And Linda's like, you, won't, you will take him. And so uh, he says, okay, I'll sit in the parking lot and read a book. She's like, no, you won't. You'll go in with him. So we actually went in, and he, I, I got somebody to take a picture, forced him to smile like he was actually enjoying it. But um, I say that because one day we're tooling down the road near Dublin, and, and Tim's driving, and I almost caused him to wreck the car. I see this little sign, literally about the size of this Bible. It looked like a little cardboard sign almost, and it said, Chester Beatty Museum. And I'm like, turn, turn. <laughs> well, I'm not going to a museum. I'm like, it's a Chester Beatty Museum. I don't care whose museum it is. I'm not going, you know. Well, Chester Beatty uh, is, uh, museum has some of the oldest extent manuscript discoveries like like you find here, P-52 and so on, that go back to almost the year 200. And he never turned, I never went, and I've never been back. <laughs> I want to say I've forgiven him, but I'm not sure, you know. But anyway, um, I wanted to go see that old manuscript. My second disappointment along that line, while we're speaking of such things, is the year that Wanda and I were in London, and uh, we were doing a tour, you know, kind of a thing. But we were more or less on our own, so we were just tooling around the city on our own. And we were staying in a hotel not very far from the British Museum. Well, I wanted to go to the British Museum. So Wanda went, and another woman from Spanish Wells, Linda, went with us. And we only had an hour. Now, <laughs> we're talking about the British Museum, okay? Well, I didn't know at the time that at that point, see, they used to keep these old manuscripts of the Bible. They had a place where they kept the manuscripts there, I didn't know they had moved those to a whole separate place. They weren't in the British Museum anymore. So that was a big disappointment. So we got an hour. I mean, what do you do? I mean, the British Museum, you walk in and there's the Rosetta Stone right in the foyer. You know, It's not actually foyer, it's foyer. <laughs> foyer, I've been told. Um, and, and so we spent an hour in the ancient east wing. There's so much stuff there. You just, it's overwhelming. You could spend weeks in the British Museum. But anyway, um, those old manuscripts that are there, they go back to uh, 2nd century. Very, very important when we think about the, the witnesses. Codex is a bound volume made from sheets folded together or sewn together, depending on the material. Uh, sometimes they had covers on them. And they began using those instead of scrolls uh, in, the, in the early 100s. Uh, this is called vellum. Uh, which was animal skin that was used for many years to copy the Bible. They'd take animal skins and have a certain process to produce them in a way that you could actually write on them. Parchment, that was scraped or stretched skin. Vellum, which was a higher quality calf skin. Two of the oldest vellum copies of the New Testament, Codex Vaticanus, which was copied in the early 300s, and Codex Sinaiticus, discovered by Tiskendorf in, uh, I think, the 1800s in a trash can in a monastery in the Sinai area. And so it was named Sinaiticus for Sinai where it was found. Literally, they just tossed it in a trash can. One of the oldest extent codexes, which is almost a complete copy of the Word of God, uh, you know, laying in the trash can there. And Tiskendorf got it. it at one time, it was one of the highest-selling uh, books that we call it a book that w went on the market that's probably not true anymore 
Wycliffe Bibles copied on hand, by hand on vellum in the 1300s, so we're still in the copying by hand mode here, you see, in the days of Wycliffe. And it could take months to produce, cost six months' wages at the time to, to buy one. The Bible was not available to everybody in those days. Now, of course, it's printed in all sorts of forms, digitally, paper, and everything else. Think a little bit about the timeline again. The Old Testament events written down in Hebrew and Aramaic. In Exodus, as we noted even yesterday, the Lord tells Moses to write the things that he was saying into a book. Old Testament writers uh, were a lot of different people, prophets, kings, shepherds, farmers, and so on. Known as the law, the prophets, and the writings, or sometimes just the law and the prophets. Paul referred to them as the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, as we say. It may be that Ezra, a scribe, collected and arranged the books of the Hebrew Bible in the fashion that we have them now, about 450 B.C., maybe. There was a a translation of the Septuagint. This is a translation of the Septuagint. So the Septuagint was a translation that was made from the Hebrew into the Greek. So it was a Greek Old Testament. Many of you would be familiar with Professor David Gooding. And David Gooding was a professor of Old Testament Greek. His field was Septuagint. And uh, I remember him telling me one time that he was slated to do a new work, a new translation that had to do with the Old Testament, but at that time when he was living in Belfast, because of the bombings and the riots and everything else that were taking place, they didn't want to transfer those manuscripts, those very highly prized manuscripts to that area, so it didn't happen. But an expert in the field of Old Testament Greek, probably translated no later than 100 B.C. by Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, Septuagint means the 70, and there were 70 or 72 folks that were used to translate it. So sometimes you'll see a reference to it, this, using the old Roman numerals for 70. This is a fragment of the Septuagint from Leviticus, somewhere around 100 B.C. Now, you may find a Bible sometimes. I remember I hadn't been saved a couple of months, and quite frankly, I was put in a jail cell with, well... I was in a jail cell, but they moved me to a different cell, and I was with these two guys in there. One of them was saved, other one not sure about, and so the three of us were in there. And one day I got hold of the Bible of the guy who wasn't saved, as far as I knew, and I'm looking at his Bible, and I'm like, dude, you got extra books in your Bible. (laughs) No, no, no. You don't have enough books. No, no, no. You got extra books. No, you don't have enough books. I'll show you who don't have extra books. <laughs> and in Christian love, we were ready to duke it out, you know. It's the first time I'd ever seen a Bible with the Apocrypha in it. And so you'll find that Roman Catholic Bibles and a few other things have what's called the Apocrypha, which is interesting because the word itself, Apocrypha, means spurious or dubious or doubtful. Now, these were never used by the Lord, never quoted by the apostles, there's some interesting history in the books like Maccabees, but you get a whole lot of other things that are just, you know, Bell and the Dragon and so on. So um, they weren't included in any Bible until way later in, 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 I think, the 1400s or so. But if you see that word Apocrypha, uh, they were never included in the Old Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures. It means hidden, unclear, doubtful. Not included in most Protestant Bibles, but found in Orthodox in Roman Catholic Bibles. 
So this will show you what they were. Daniel in the in the this Bible has Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, you know, Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees. Again, some of these things have good history, but they're not considered to be canonical. They're not considered to be the Word of God. And so we find again the Lord Jesus quoting from the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. By the way, very important to note, isn't it? When we come to the authority of the Word of God and things that are taught in the Word of God, we always have to consider the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Because that's what we're up against. Sometimes people say, oh, those things, how can you believe those things? And they claim to be Christians. Well, what did the Lord Jesus believe? You know, and I'm going to quote these very quickly, by the way. We want to mention that the notes will probably be made available on the website. And so uh, the notes will be there for those in that form at least. But often the Lord Jesus would say, Moses said. In uh, Matthew 12:40, the Lord Jesus talked about Jonah and the great fish. In Matthew 19:4, he talked about creation. When I say talked about it, he taught creation. He spoke of Adam and Eve and marriage between the man and the woman. These are not just things that Christians later added on. These are the things that the Lord Jesus himself taught. He, talk, he talked about the flood. He told his disciples about the reality of a worldwide flood. Noah, the ark. He talked about Daniel the prophet, didn't he? He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to those cities. The judgments that fell upon them. He, he spoke of Lot's wife who was turned into a pillar of salt. So you see, when some of these things that people say, oh, how can that be? That's too fantastic. Well, um, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus believed and taught these things. Very strong um, basis for our faith, isn't it? I said at the outset, you see, when we come to the reliability of the Scripture and the Word of God, we remember that that uh, we're up against these two things. If this book is not the Word of God, then Jesus Christ is not who he said he was. And if Jesus Christ is not who he said he was, this book is not the Word of God. Those two are intricately linked. You cannot separate them in that sense. The Lord and the Word and the Word and the Lord. Very important. Everything I told you, you see, and we've covered this, the law, the prophets must be fulfilled. Open their minds so they could understand the scriptures, and that was the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. I'm going to move through some of this very quickly um, to get to a couple of other points for sake of time. The followers of the Lord Jesus quote from all but eight of the books found in the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament. And there again, that helps us when, the, when it comes to how they recognize the canon of Scripture and so on. Did the Lord quote from it? Did his followers quote from it and so on? At the end of the AD 100s, we began to call, they began to call it the New Covenant or the New Testament. Early Bible translations, originally the New Testament written in the Greek language. Some of the earliest Bible translations were Latin, Coptic, and Syriac. Syriac. The church leaders at that time received the writings of the apostles and their close associates as canonical. The word canon refers to a standard or a rule.
by 400 A.D., there was a consensus that had emerged throughout the churches that 27 books could be traced to the testimony of apostolic witnesses and their close associates. It was confirmed by the church, these so-called church fathers, and by certain councils and synods that occurred in the year 400. Now, I don't have the time to go into the to fully into the canonicity of Scripture and how the canon was decided, but it is a very interesting and fascinating thing to see how God providentially guided this. So it didn't take place uh, a full recognition until around the year, uh, almost the year 400. You say, well, why is that? Of course, communication in those days was difficult for one thing. But the, the fascinating thing about it is by the time that they had these councils, these books of the Bible and other writings had had enough time to circulate that by then the church as a whole recognized this one's scripture, this one isn't. So there wasn't a whole lot of discussion in that sense that had to take place. They knew that the Shepherd of Hermes or the Gospel of Hermes, eh, the churches weren't using that. But there were some that were using them. So they said, you know, we need to get together and recognize which ones are and which ones aren't. There were other people, heretics like Marcion, that had started to develop his own canon. So the church thought it wise to come together in a synod or a council and come to some consensus. And when they did, they came to a consensus about the books that were recognized as apostolic. So it either had to be written by an apostle or by a close associate. Now, I want to say this fact, and you'll have to verify it, check it out with me. But I think when we come to the New Testament, one of the other fascinating things providentially, there are only, I want to say, seven authors of the New Testament. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. you got Paul. You've got uh, Jude. And who am I missing? And James. Peter. Peter, eight. Wait, maybe one more? Hebrews, thank you, yes. Who said that? Ah, yes, Hebrews, nine. So we've got nine. Now, some people say Paul wrote Hebrews. We don't know, but let's call it nine. Well, you only had nine of those writers. A number of those just mentioned were either apostles or you have like Paul or James, the brother of the Lord, you see. And so they were all either... Apostles are closely related to the apostles. That was one of the great tests that was used for canon or canonicity of Scripture. And so that was one of the things. And then, of course, it was there the witness of the Spirit of God that this book was indeed the Word of God and so on. But by the time these things had circulated throughout all these churches and had been used for hundreds of years, literally, it, it didn't take much to be able to recognize which ones were indeed. Now, the other beauty of this, this is an important point that the church councils did not decide which books were Scripture. Why is that important? Because the authority of the Word of God doesn't rest in a church or a church council. They recognized which books were Scripture, which puts the authority back upon the book or the Word of God. Your authority does, is not found, you are not have to be subject to, in that sense, a church council or an edict or a synod. The authority was that they recognized what was already true, that this was the word of God. That's an important distinction to remember. So in some of the areas of the expansion of Christian Christianity in the Roman Empire by the time 325. Now, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, uh, 
He, he finished it. it. took him 23 years, it says, to finish the Latin Vulgate, written in Latin in the day. Problem was, Latin was a, a language for pr- pretty much the educated, and most people weren't. Became known as the Vulgate to make common. He wanted to make it common, but problem again with the language. The Masoretes were the scribes who preserved the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures. Hebrew and Aramaic have no written vowels. The Masoretes added accents and vowel markings or vowel points to be able to guide the readers. And they, as I said, they kept statistics on all of the different things that had to do with those manuscripts, the Masoretic text. And Christianity began to spread even to Britain by the time uh, we find here. And I'm going to move along a bit. Pauper's Bible, first chick track. <laughs> but literally, it was, it was written in picture form because people couldn't read. So they tried to convey to people uh, truths of, of the Scripture. First complete English Bible translated from Latin in 1382 by John Wycliffe. Wycliffe wanted the people of England to have the Bible in their language. Taught the scripture, not church tradition, was the ultimate and final authority for God's people. He became known as the morning star of the Reformation that rose before Luther and and the The Bible was banned and burned. Imagine working on a Bible all those years, all that hard labor, and they banned that Bible. And whenever After his death, 44 years after Wycliffe's death, his bones were exhumed, and they burned his bones, and they declared him a heretic. Why? Because he wanted the people to have the Word of God. You see, when I read this stuff, I'll tell you what it does to me. Not only does it send goosebumps, but it's... These people gave their lives to translate the scripture. I mean, some of them, as we'll see, suffered horrendous deaths. For what? For wanting the people to have a copy of this in their hand. And we've got it in such abundance. It shames me to think about it sometimes. I know the number of Bibles I have, and Lord, how do I use what you've given me? It's incredible when you think about it. In 1408 in England, it became illegal to translate or read the Bible in common English without the permission of a bishop. First Spanish Bible, the Alfonso Bible, 1280, commissioned by Alfonso the Wise, the king of Castile. Interesting, isn't it? 1280, first fully complete Spanish Bible. Translation of the Latin Vulgate. And, of course, we mentioned the Gutenberg Press already in the printing press, one of the greatest events to influence the spread of the Bible. Here's a page from the Gutenberg Bible, illustrated, illuminated, as they would say. Now, not important for you to know, except that Erasmus was a a Greek scholar. He published a Greek New Testament. Erasmus' New Testament is still used today. It is known as uh, the the basis of the authorized version, King James, Textus Receptus. So you can still, there are still scholars who who use a version of Erasmus' received text uh, for their Greek study. 
It was the basis of works by Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and the translators of the King James. Textus Receptus, or the received text. And, of course, we know Martin Luther believed righteousness comes by faith alone. Now, let's uh, move on. William Tyndale, very important. This man, what a man. He was an Oxford scholar and a priest. At, at dinner, a priest once said to him, We had better be without God's law than the Pope's. In other words, better off to be without God's law. Better to have the Pope's law. And that moved William Tyndale. Tyndale said, If God spares my life... I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than you do. <laughs> cause the, a plow boy to know more scripture than you do. Tyndale decided he'd translate the New Testament from Greek into English. Wanted everybody to be able to read it in their own language. The bishop refused to allow him to publish it. He moved to Germany and he printed Bibles smuggling them into England in barrels of wine, sacks of corn and flour. 1535, he published part of the Old Testament from Hebrew, known as the father of the English Bible. Influenced almost every translation of the English Bible. 1530, he criticized the king's dismissal of his wife, and a friend betrayed him, and they strangled him and burned him at the stake and declared him a heretic. That every plowboy might know the Bible better than you, Bishop, you do. That was his desire. And through men like him who gave their lives, the word of God was translated and spread. His final words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. As he was strangled and burned at the stake. Open the king of England's eyes. And God answered William Tyndale's dying plea to open the king of England's eyes. And there were, new, there were versions that were... This was called the Chained Bible. See how it was chained? Those that could read have to come in and read it there where it was chained. <laughs> Copy of the Great Bible, also called the Chained Bible. England's Queen Mary banned the Protestant translations of the English Bible. This is a history you don't get in school. The Matthews Bible translator John Rogers and Archbishop Thomas Cramer burned at the stake translating the scripture. Later, some 300 men, women, and children were burned for having a copy of the Bible. The Geneva Bible, they fled from England to Geneva, Switzerland, and published the Geneva Bible. By the way, my daughter just went with friends to, um, to Washington, D.C. They'd not been before, and they went to the Bible Museum there. I, I want to go. Thank you, Hobby Lobby. You know, they're the ones that fronted most of the money for that. Smithsonian, it's right there by the Smithsonian. I mean, it's, a, it's an enormous place and quite costly to do, but I think it would be fascinating. Probably have a copy of the Geneva Bible. There's some extent copies of these that are still around. And then, ultimately, after the Geneva Bible, we had the Bishop's Bible, which began under Queen Elizabeth. But, see, a lot of these Bibles, what they would do back then was they'd put 
All the, you know, this is the Bible. They put all these church notes in there. Not like we have a study Bible today, but these things that, okay, we know that says that, but we're telling you this, you see. And, and so that just wasn't cool. So um, eventually... At Hampton Court in 1604, the Puritans asked King James I of England for reforms to the Church of England, and they, he didn't answer most of them, but he did agree to a new English translation of the Bible, and hence it became known as the Authorized Version or the King James Version. Commissioned 54 scholars to produce a Bible that did not include theological or political notes like the Geneva Bible did. Now, I don't have it anymore. I wish I had it to give away. Uh, if you ever run across a book on Amazon, it's not a very thick book. Uh, well, what folks find interesting to read may not be what I find interesting to read, and vice versa, and vice versa. But anyway, The Men Behind the, King, the KJV. It's an interesting book. You'll read about men like Lancelot Andrews. Some of these men learned Greek at age four. Some of them, by the time they were in their teens, were fluent in multiple languages. These were some of the most scholarly men that lived in that day. And again, in an era of time when there was a certain reverence for the things that had to do with the word of God. And so it was a remarkable translation, of course. Uh, organized into six teams. They had earlier English translations. They had Erasmus uh, received text, Hebrew and Aramaic text. And so in these different teams went, did their own translation work, came together, sent their things, cross-checked, referenced you know, everybody's work, and that's how the production of the King James uh, took place. Completed in 1609, published in 1611, uh, revised in 1769, and the version that we use today is pretty much the product. Now, there would have been changes, but in the, in the way that the letters looked and so on, but that's a whole other subject. Remained the most popular Bible in English for more than 300 years. The Reina Valera, Spanish Bible. I hope I said that right. <laughs> for years, the standard Spanish Bible, La Biblia. 1602. Now, I'm going to have to move along. Ooh, Codex Alexandrinus. See, so what happened is, here's a question that you'll get sometime. I've got to stop. I think I've gone way over time. But anyway, um, a question that often comes up is, why do we have translational differences between some of the modern translations and like the King James, for instance. Well, in, um, in 1629, you have this Codex Alexandrinus, Alexandria, Egypt, was made available to Western scholars. Uh, a copy of it was made available. One of the earliest, most complete copies of the New Testament. It goes back to the 400s. In the mid-1800s, as I said, uh, Sinaiticus was discovered in Mount Sinai in this monastery, so you had new manuscript discoveries. Here's John 3 in the Codex Sinaiticus, one of the oldest, most reliable surviving manuscripts of the New Testament. So what happened is, uh, as late as the 1800s, now you had a whole new wave of archaeological and manuscript discoveries. And so uh, some of the uh, a new Greek text was developed, and um, it was different in some points from Erasmus's received text and so on. I don't want to get too complicated or, or too out in the weeds on this, except to say that there were variants and differences in certain places, and so scholars have gone back and forth since over which is the better 
Greek text from which to translate from, but your modern translations pretty much would have been a result of the discovery of these new manuscripts. I want to hasten to say, though, that when you read them in the various translations that we've been blessed to have, you're not going to find things that affect the doctrines of Scripture, the truth of the Word of God. Many of them are very minor. Some of them can be significant, but again, they don't affect the truth and the reliability and the authority of God's Word. Codex Vaticanus was locked up in the Vatican, and scholars weren't let at it until almost, uh, not quite 1900, but the late 1800s. Probably copied as early as the 300s, older than Codex Sinaiticus. So you see, we've got a multitude of, of uh, different texts that go way, way back. Um, I won't have time to take into all this. The Braille Bible, first completed in 1924. I never knew this until just now. You know why it's called Braille? Because Louis Braille, blind since the age of three, completed a system for reading at age 15. And that's why it was called, after him, Braille. And then the first Braille Bible done in 1924. 21 volumes the Braille Bible was, can you imagine? Very heavy. We've talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on, so I'm not going to go much more into that. Is there anything else here that we want to, we want to look at? Oh, yeah, everybody wants to know about the Ugaritic text. Uh, not really. <laughs> of course, the Bible, the goal uh, in English translation is to communicate the truth of the Word of God. So this is what I was saying earlier. All the different translations we had, you see, that were based on different discoveries and, and so on, all of these new discoveries of the different scrolls and whatnot. So that's all we're going to take up on that, how we got our Bible. I know it was a lot of information. I'm sure you memorized every point of it. Um, but one of the things I hope you came away with at least is to realize that um, the scriptures that we have today are the result of a number of things. The marvelous preservation of the text of scripture and the manuscripts of Scripture, how God providentially oversaw these things, the incredible accuracy with which these things were copied and communicated, and the price that many people paid so that you and I could have in our hands a book to hold and read and learn the truth about God's Son. That's an incredible thing, isn't it, to think about. So let's stop for there. Our next session we're going to talk about the reliability and trustworthiness again, of the Scripture, and how, again, we can trust that this is indeed the Word of God. Our Father, we thank you that we hold in our hands a book that you've communicated to us. I say it again, as was said yesterday, if you were to say anything from heaven, you wouldn't say anything other than you've already said in this book. And this book unveils your mind, and this book unveils your heart, and wisdom, and truth. Truth about life, truth about death, truth about what happens after death, Truth about salvation and sin and forgiveness. We thank you for what has been done to be able to place in our hands a book that we can hold and say this is God's word. We thank you. Help us to use it, not to neglect it. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.